0: Okay, now for the next few minutes, I'd like to tell you a few things about me that you may not already know. If you've been with me for a while, you probably feel like you've, you've heard every anecdote uh, about my family and uh, my upbringing and, and now my, my children's upbringing. Uh, because again, sometimes I feel like I've shared them all. In fact, Charles was asking me uh, just earlier this week, when are you going to run out of anecdotes? Hopefully never. Hopefully I, I still collect them as I go. But make no mistake about it. There are things you still don't know about me, for starters. I once got into trouble uh, with the police for trespassing. That's right. I was in college at the time. I was up to no good, trespassing. Uh, uh, Let's say I've, I've stolen money before. That's not a metaphor. I've stolen actual cash money. I've also stolen goods from a store. I've stolen goods from a store, not exaggeration. I stole something from a store. What else can I tell you uh, about me that you don't know? Uh, Speaking of things I've stolen, I've stolen a vehicle as well. I've stolen a car. Uh, I realize there are former law or current law enforcement agents in the the room, too. So that makes me a little bit more uncomfortable. Uh, What else have I done? How about this? I once uh, uh, broke up with a girl just because I got tired of her. That's right. (laughs) True story. Now, again, if I keep this up, I'm gonna lose my job. So um, I need to start making some clarifi- clarifications here. Now the trespassing incident, trespassing incident. Uh, it, w- it was was really trespassing, but uh, it was done so by mistake. My friends and I were in an office building after hours and we wandered into an area that we shouldn't have been in. And pretty soon we were greeted by the police, hands up. And we we're like, okay, we've certainly wandered in the wrong direction. But uh, they, we explained it all, cleared things up and they uh, gave us a warning and told us to get out of here. Okay, the money I stole, the money I stole. That was when I was a kid. I was a kid, uh, my dad had this dish on his dresser and he always had loose change. And this is back in the day when we all used to use more cash and every day he would come home with a pocket of change, he would empty out there. And so once in a while, I would like to snag a quarter or two from there because I could use that to buy gum or candy or whatever. And I kept that up until my mom told me one day, "You know, that's called um, stealing, stop doing that, okay? Can't just take people's stuff without asking, that's stealing. And the goods that I stole, Okay, speaking of gum and candy, yes, about the same time in my life, I went down to the drugstore, I was in grade school, I stole a pack of gum, I, 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 I snuck it off the shelf and put it in my pocket and left the store, I straight up stole it, okay, but here's the thing, I felt so guilty about it that the next day, I went down to the drugstore I'd already consumed this pack because I would get rid of the evidence. I put all five pieces of gum in my mouth all at once and chewed it and said this. Day. So the next day I went back down to that drugstore. I bought a pack of gum, maybe with my dad's stolen money. I don't know. <laughs> I bought a pack of gum. Thank you from the clerk. And I walked back to the shelf and I put the gum back on the shelf and left the store. So I, I atoned for my sins. I replaced the actual gum that I stole. The car that I stole was a prank. It's a prank on a friend. Very funny. Uh, we put his car in front of the, the dorm, just like in front of on the sidewalk of the dorm. We had the permission from the security guards to do it. It was all very fun. But again, and the girl I broke up with, this was also in grade school. I asked a girl in third grade if she would be my girlfriend. She said yes. Two days later, she wanted to hold my hand during recess. I said, no way. And we broke up. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. We were no longer boyfriend. And girl. There you go. So so what's the point of all this? I'm not just telling you this so that you can make fun of me, which you probably will do anyway. But if I were to tell you about all these incidents in isolation and I didn't give you the full context for them, you'd walk away thinking that uh, I was a pretty bad person. If I only told you those things about my my habits of stealing or, you know, or or or, or breaking people's hearts, you, you'd, you'd probably think I was a bad guy. But I think you know me better than that by now. I don't think you look at me and say, you know, he might be a thief hopefully you don't think think that that of me so again it helps to have the full context of the story does it not it helps to know that that all of these incidents occurred many many years ago and and, uh and and kind of a lot has happened since then the story of my life has developed to a certain point that you realize okay I understand the context of it and I see what happened where he was going and now and now what he's uh what he's doing uh, today so again Um, there are specific circumstances around each one that help clarify what they are. So if you only look at them in isolation, you walk away troubled thinking there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that we have to deal with here. Okay, and admittedly, this is what's difficult about this hard sayings series of the Bible. Okay, Uh, what we're doing is picking out isolated passages in the scriptures that trouble us. And if we don't understand the full context around them, they remain hard sayings. That's why, that's why I harp on context every time. Now, in some of the verses that we've looked at to this point, I make a point of showing you the larger context immediately surrounding the hard saying. Uh, and again, when we do that, we, we're, we're given insight. The passages that I'm gonna provide you or show you today uh, require you to understand not just the passages immediately around it, but it requires you to understand the whole Bible. The whole Bible, okay? What do I mean by that? I mean, if you don't understand the arc of scripture, where it started, where it went and, and where it's going to end up, if you don't understand the arc of the, the, the entire redemptive story of the Bible, the passage, we're going to at two today. The passages that we look at are always going to remain difficult. They're always going to, you're going to, you're going to look at them and say, I don't understand why God did that. I can't reconcile in my mind what he's doing here. Okay, so what's the first passage we're going to look at today? This, I, I, I love these, these stories because, again, they just seem so off the wall. When we look at passages of the Bible, we think, uh, well, that seems to fit with what I understand the Bible to be. Then once in a while, we stumble across something like this, and we think, what? <laughs> what happened here? I sent, I teased it out yesterday. Did anyone get a chance to look at the—I sent it on email. Did anyone look at the passage that I'm talking about? Okay, just a couple of you. Good, okay. The rest of you are going to be shocked can't wait all right we're gonna look at a couple of these verses one comes by way of a special request someone actually requested this and said, hey speaking of hard sayings maybe you can explain this one and so that's what we're going to lead off with today um and so the passage comes from second kings chapter two. Second kings chapter two folks online if you want to get your bibles out because i know you can't really see the screen behind me second kings chapter two and it starts in verse 23 and i'm just going to read a little bit from the passage and we'll try and and, and back ourselves out of it to understand the immediate context than the greater biblical context. So this is 2 Kings chapter 2, 23 and following. And Elisha, Elisha the prophet is now succeeding Elijah, okay, uh, as the prophet of God. He's succeeding him. And now he's just performed a sign before the people to validate his office. That is, that he is in fact prophet of God. And after he performs this sign, this happens. Verse 23 and following. He went up uh, from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Does anyone have that cross stitched on a pillow by any chance in their, in their home? And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she bears, those are just mama bears, uh, like actual bears, okay, came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys, From there, he went to Mount Carmel, or yeah, Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. There we go. That's a great passage, isn't it? What happened here? It would seem that some kids were making fun of Elisha, who evidently is bald, and therefore the prophet of God cursed them, and then they were mauled by bears, (laughs) and so... (laughs) And so again, I, now you know why we put this in the hard sayings and why someone else uh, from your class said, what, 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 what is this about? Okay, doesn't it seem kind of harsh? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you guess that? What, why, why would the Lord allow such a thing? Okay, let's see if we can do some explaining here. All right, for, we're gonna take a little bit of edge off the story first of all, but again, we're still gonna be left with some questions. The Hebrew word here that's being used for small boys, okay, more specifically means young men. Other translations use the word youths. In other parts of the Old Testament, this word is used to describe people as old as the age of 20, okay? So this tells me this is probably a group of teenagers. I don't know if you know anything about teenagers, but they're awful. (laughs) They're awful. They're amongst the meanest people on the planet. They're insensitive, they're moody, uh, ungrateful. Let me tell you, they're, they're not always the smartest. They always make the smartest decisions. Now, I'm describing the average American teenager. So we can't say, well, those sassy teenagers had it coming, right? We can't say that. They shouldn't have made fun of Elijah. No, we can't say that, Elisha. We can't say that. But what we can say is that the the teenager in this time was was probably held to quite a higher standard than, than teenagers today. Teenagers as young as 13 in this time are considered adults. Many were often given to marriage by the time they were 13, by the time they were 13. So that's the first thing you should be aware of in this story. This is not a story about God's prophet proclaiming a curse on a bunch of children, okay? And the children are then mauled by bears. That's not what this is about, okay? However, it's still a pretty pretty serious story either way, whether it's youths or whether it's uh, adults or anything else, okay? Uh, I don't want to read into the text, but it says the bears tore 42 of the boys. That sounds awful any way you look at it. Now, presumably... If 42 of them experienced the the wrath of a couple of mama bears, there were probably some teens that got away, okay? The bears got 42 of them. If they got 42, how many got away? Let's let's be conservative and say maybe half got away while the other half uh, were torn by the bears. Um, Once again, this is a large gathering. You wouldn't have some 80 to 90 children, right? Gathered together just out in the open somewhere where there there are bears around. Uh, You wouldn't do that. They didn't have public school recess back then. Okay, so what's going on here? This was more than likely a demonstration, a large gathering of young people who got together for the purpose of mocking the prophet of God. All right, it's a mob. It's a mob that we have here. Why is this mob of youths mocking a prophet? Okay, as I noted a moment ago, Elisha, who was a student of the prophet Elijah, he was a student of him is now taking over his mentor's role and his mentor earlier in the same chapter was just taken up to heaven in a whirlwind perhaps you've heard that story Uh, there's some chariots involved though he wasn't taken up by chariots it made makes it sound like perhaps it was but there were chariots there in between so he was taken up in a whirlwind so here's this young guy first day on the job pretty big shoes to fill and and so now this mob which has gathered around challenging elisha to demonstrate what what uh what he was everything that elijah was and so they're jeering at him go up you bald head now let's take that insult in in two parts first go up any guesses as to why they are saying go up any thoughts why they're telling it you have a guess Oh my word, genius! George is a genius in here. It's exactly right, exactly right. What? Who is just who just went up to heaven, Elijah? And they're saying if you're anything, if you're a prophet like you say you are, let's see you go up, go up, Elijah, go up. Okay, that's number one. Great job. Okay, so Elijah, Elijah did. They're jeering at him to demonstrate that he's a prophet every bit as a as, a, as Elijah was. So go on up, you too. Now, why are they calling him baldhead? Presumably because he was bald. <laughs> this one is not mysterious, I don't think. He's a young guy. Elisha is a young guy, okay? So, so if he's bald, it's he's suffering from early onset uh, hair loss. Uh, some, literally some commentators think as a prophet, he might've shaved his head like the monks did, but there's really no evidence back then that the prophet did that, did, did, was in that prac- uh, practice. In fact, it's sometimes uh, even thought of the opposite. If you, if you go to the chapter before, we read about Elijah's garment of hair, Okay, uh, so there's a little disagreement as to what that means. Most take it to mean that he wore animal skins. Some believe it to mean that he was a hairy man in general, that Elijah was just a hairy man in general. And again, that's not a stretch if you think about Samson in the Old Testament. Hair meant something. Hair was important. And even what we read about John the Baptist in the New, he was also gruff and hairy and whatnot. But either way, the, how much hair he had or didn't have is really not the point. The point is he was being mocked. Okay, he wasn't didn't look like the part of a prophet. And so he was being mocked for that for, for that sake. So Elisha was mocked, the youth were, youth were cursed, and out came the bears. Okay, now, just for a moment, let's set aside the question as to whether or not this is too harsh. What is the crime that has been committed here? What did these youths do? Uh, we'll just say for now, worthy of correction or rebuke? What were they doing that perhaps was worthy of correction or, or rebuke? anyone have a guess as to that one grieving the holy spirit rhoda says that's a great way to say that what does that mean what is grieving the holy spirit what's another what's another way what's a different way we could say that or uh disrespecting the holy spirit disrespecting the holy spirit and yes i punched holy for a reason okay now i know i've mentioned something like this before Uh, And uh, this was the case, especially when my kids were younger. If my kids were were roughhousing and running around the house, and one would take shelter in a room, perhaps their own room, and lock the door, uh, do you remember? I've I've told you this story before. What would I say? What would I tell my kids? Don't lock the doors. Don't play with the doors. In fact, don't even play with the doors, because inevitably, you're running around, you slam a door. That's a good way to lose a digit, right? Right. And beyond that, I say, there's no no reason to lock the door either. Don't shut the door, don't lock the door. For my kids, there's no good reason for you to be behind a locked door ever. So just leave them open, don't play with them, okay? And, And so one would run into the door, they'd shut it and they'd lock it, and the other one would say, open the door. Why? Because dad said so, so they opened the door. Now, whose rule is it that there are no doors to be locked? It's my rule, it's my rule. I've established that rule. That was my rule. I told the kids, first of all, don't play with the doors, okay? So when the child tells the one behind the locked door to open it, he's, is he telling him to do that by his own authority? No, he's invoking my authority, okay? This is what you have to realize when it comes to the prophet. The prophet does not speak of his own desires. He does not speak of his own opinions. The job of the prophet, without bias or personal commentary, he was to speak the words of God on behalf of God he's God's agent, God's agent, God's representative. So what you have to understand here is to ridicule Elisha is to ridicule God himself, okay? To ridicule Elisha is to ridicule God himself. Even though it's a sense once removed, it's still the words of the Lord that Elisha speaks. So again, just like my sons, they couldn't simply ignore the request because it was coming from their brother. No, ultimately they would be ignoring my request if they left the door shut and locked, in fact, according to the Old Testament law, if you mock the voice of a prophet, it was equivalent of belittling God himself, which is, which is blasphemy. And that was a capital offense, okay? Now, I point this out to show you the seriousness, the seriousness of what these youths had done. Youth is such a funny word. I don't know why I stumble over it every time. But the underlying message is that, is that God is holy. That's the underlying message here. God is holy. Whether or not you think, boy, it seems harsh, the reaction in this moment is something, the thing that we need to understand here is that God is holy. God's word is holy. It isn't to be taken lightly. To sin against God is worthy of death. Romans chapter six, for the wages of sin, it doesn't say just a certain kind of sin or just this seriousness of sin. The wages of sin is death, okay? Now, hang on to that thought. Because, yes, I've made, you know, perhaps we're making a case here for the serious nature of what they've done, but we've probably little, done little to address the whole is, is God overreacting in the Old Testament? Is God overreacting? Because that's usually what this comes down to when we read accounts like this. We, we, we seem to think, and I alluded to this yesterday in the email, that, that perhaps God was a little bit more angrier in the Old Testament, because we don't see this angry God so much in the New Testament. We see it a lot in the Old. And is this a case in which we have the angry God? Okay, so hang on to that. We're going to get to that, I promise. So here's the second uh, case. Uh, that was the first one. Here's the second one. It's another peculiar instance in the Old Testament where God is seemingly overreacting. Okay, uh, this is one we can find in a couple of places, actually. It's detailed once in 2 Samuel and again in 1 Chronicles. The offender's name is Uzzah. Do we know about Uzza? How many people know about Uzzah? Okay, a few of you. You're going to love this story, too. Let's look at this account. This is in 2 Samuel. Uh, for those of you on, uh, online, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And it says this. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with the songs of lyres and harps and tambourines and, and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen had stumbled. Whoa, I'm gonna steady it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down therefore because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So there's the scene. Okay. King David wants to move the ark to Jerusalem. The ark had moved prior to this. In fact, sometimes it would even go into battle with them. Uh, You might read this and think David even has good intentions. Let's let's bring the ark to the capital of Jerusalem here. Jerusalem is now the capital city and, and David has every intention of building the temple here and making this the center of worship that the ark wouldn't have a, a a a temporary dwelling place anymore It wouldn't roam around that it would find its place in the temple in a permanent place and in the process of moving it david had poor uzzah here put it on the cart mistake number one and then move it on the cart what's happening what went wrong what what went wrong here anyone have a guess yeah steve they were supposed to carry the ark on poles. God has very specific instructions for not only how to move the ark, but who would move the ark. You couldn't just say, hey, put it on the cart. Let's go. OK, very specific instructions, very specific instructions here. Um, I don't know if you know much about electricity, but there have been occasions where I've had to do some electrical work in the house. Now, I know how to do some of these things because my dad taught me. He's a very good dad and, and taught me all kinds of uh, things that have proven to be useful uh, throughout my adult years. Uh, things like, you know, installing a new receptacle or uh, switching out. Of things. of like, Oh, we want to change all the receptacles to white ones now or whatever so we can do all that. Now, I've done some jobs which are light electrical work and some that are a tad more advanced than that. And really, once you understand the nature of how the electrical circuit works in your house, it becomes less daunting. Now, in fact, my dad showed me how to, for instance, if you want to replace a receptacle, he said, here's how you can do it without even turning off the power. You have to be very, very careful, okay? Uh, In fact, I've done that before, but guess what? I don't do that anymore. You know why? I've been shocked. I've been shocked and and that's no fun, okay? In fact, uh, besides it not being fun, it's very dangerous, okay? It's very dangerous. We do the wrong thing without exaggeration here, it could cost you your life if you do the wrong thing. So, so now as a matter of practice, if I'm gonna be doing anything around the house of the electrical nature at home, I shut the power off, shut it off. And even though I know how to do it with a power on, I still shut it off. And, and I even have a circuit tester that allows me to double check whether or not the power is really off because if by some error, wiring or mental or otherwise, if there's still power running through the circuit that you were certain was off, it could still it could still mess you up, okay? Double check, shut it off, double check, and then I proceed to do what I need to do. And generally speaking, if you do that, you really can remove the danger of what you're doing. Okay, if you remember to do exactly those things. If you start to get a little casual with it, if you start to get a little too casual with it. If you start getting careless, then once again, it's not a, not a stretch to think that you could really hurt yourself here, even, even kill yourself. And this this was David and Uzzah's great sin. They got They got a little too comfortable with something, if not handled properly, could kill them. Now again, it's not that there was electrical current running through the ark, but there's still some, there's still a deadly factor at play here. And, and why would God do that? You're probably asking. Why would God make that? I'm gonna to get to that here. And it's interesting, it's interesting to me that prior to moving the ark, it was at the home of Abinadab. It was in someone's home. And and who was Abinadab? it was Uzzah's father. So Uzzah probably got comfortable with the ark just being around the house. He, he'd walk through the living room, and maybe there was the ark. Just, just there, just amongst the other lamps. <laughs> well, they we didn't have lamps. Just the other, uh, amongst the other furniture or items uh, in, in the house. A little too comfortable, a little too familiar, and it ultimately cost him his life. Now, Can you draw any parallels between the first account and second account? Is there a common thread between the youths who are belittling God and Uzzah who got a little too casual with the ark? Can you draw any parallels there? Are you starting to see this thread? These are matters of, what was the word I punched a little bit ago? Holiness. This is a matter of holiness. Again, not electrical current, but holiness. Okay? God is holy. But he's not just holy, as the scripture scripture emphasizes to us. Holy, holy, holy. He's so far separate from us in that regard. Oftentimes we we forget just how holy he is and how unholy we are. Whenever we get talking about holiness, I can't help but think about uh, uh, Isaiah. Sixth chapter of Isaiah, one of my favorite passages in all of the scripture. Isaiah, got to be a pretty righteous guy probably a to be a prophet of god probably probably a pretty pretty righteous dude but even when he gets in the presence of a holy 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 lord what does he do he calls a curse down upon himself woe is me for i am ruined i'm ruined he says he is holy and we are so 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 unholy Holiness can't exist with unholiness. There needs to be a protective element that stands between the two. And with that protective element there, sometimes, oftentimes, we lose sight of just how holy God is and how unholy we are. God's word expressed to the prophet Elijah, Elisha is holy. It's set apart. To mistreat it is a deadly proposition. God's presence as ordained by God to be with his people in the ark is it's set apart to mistreat it is a deadly proposition do you remember what what God told Moses when Moses asked the Lord show me your face signify your presence to us prove to us give us proof positive that you will be amongst us show us your face Lord and what did God say what did he says he oh no I can't do that I can't show you my face why it'll kill you. It'll kill you. I am holy. I am holy. And he tells us this, yes, because he is holy, but it's also a measure of protection for us. I am holy, you are not. And the way you can negotiate that is if something or someone stands between God and man and intercedes and offers a blanket of protection. This is why that passage that I was just talking about in and Exodus is so uh, amazing because what does God do? He puts, he puts a rock between himself and Moses as a layer of protection. And who's that rock ultimately foreshadowing? The rock of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm getting at here. Who is it that intercedes, that stands between God and man is to restore fellowship, to, to be that intermediary between the holy and unholy? Who is that? It's Jesus, of course. And what you have to realize... When you read the Old Testament, is that God is telling us this story over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, we see God dealing with Israel in the same way that a loving father would deal with a child when they willfully sinned against Him and, and, and chased after idols. God would discipline them. He would discipline them. when when they got too careless, when they stopped appreciating the true nature of of, of the holiness of God. He would have to institute disciplinary measures. And each time they would repent and, and he would deliver them. But believe it or not, this isn't unlike how God deals with Christians in the New Testament either, okay? For example, what does Hebrews 12, 6 tell us? Not that. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. So throughout the Old Testament, we see God's judgment poured out on sin in the new testament according to romans 1:18, we also read that for the wrath of god this is new testament for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth in other words god still today reveals his wrath to men to man to mankind and it may not be obvious to us As obvious as when we read it on the pages of the Old Testament, but it happens. He's still active in that regard. But we also have to remember something else. Here's something else we have to remember. Yes, we can read about all kinds of incidents like the ones we looked at from the Old Testament today, and it appears to be really harsh to us. And there are so many other accounts like this in the Old Testament. And again, we could could go on and on for a long time about all these accounts like this in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and it seems like we don't read much of that. And I get that we have to acknowledge that that's the case. We we read about Jesus who reaches out to sinners and the sick, the tax collectors, the lowlifes of society. And aside from a few isolated incidents, like I can think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, they lied, right? And bam, dead, right? And let's not forget this one. The ultimate, the, the greatest act of God's wrath that we've ever seen in the entire Bible is where? It's on the cross. It's The greatest act of God's wrath. Okay. And so we could say that that God's God's greatest act was, was, was the crucifixion. Uh, and, but generally speaking, when we make our way through the New Testament, we don't see God swallowing up the earth until we get to Revelation. Then we read about it quite a bit. So it's like we're in this window of sorts. It's like we're in this window. The Old Testament era ends, and then comes Jesus in the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 4, we read about Jesus who enters the synagogue and he reads a portion of scripture from Isaiah foretelling of the Lord's favor, who will bring liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. And then he says this in Luke 4, 20 to 21, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled and you're hearing and and it's this portion of scripture that it reads from uh from isaiah and then he stops just short just short before he gets to the day of judgment and wrath in that same passage in isaiah he stopped short you see when jesus came into the world he brought with him salvation he brought salvation with him you know this one john three sixteen and 17 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Are you starting to see what I mean about understanding the whole Bible? The arc, that, that storyline that, that extends the entire length of the Bible. Yes, the Old Testament was telling us something of sin and the consequences of sin and showing us the difference between holiness and unholiness. He's setting up the stage for us. He's he's telling us the story. Here's how detrimental sin can be. Here's here's not even the full deserving punishment to sin, but here's, here's just a taste of it, okay? He's telling us what holiness is and what unholiness gets us. It gets us death. And then, yes, the New Testament comes along with Jesus, comes along salvation, the one who stands between unholiness and holiness. You see, the Old Testament was, in a manner of speaking, preparation to show us how wrathful God is against sin and the consequences that sin brings us. He's setting the stage for us. So the Old Testament also strained just how glorious God is and how terrible sin is. And then we find salvation in Jesus, who is mercy incarnate, grace incarnate, forgiveness incarnate, saying, I I didn't come to condemn. I'm here to save. I'm here to save you from that. To offer you rest from what you've earned through your sin. This is what I brought you. So in a manner of speaking, yes. Yes, the Old Testament appears dark because sin looks horrible. And this is what he's painting for us in the Old Testament. That God is just, and he has to do something with sin. He can't ignore it. He can't brush it to the side. He has to show us what's, what, what sin deserves. He can't ignore it. And there's this tension that builds all throughout to the point that we say, what are we going to do about this? What can we do about this? How are we going to escape this? And The reality is that we can't escape it unless God himself does something about it. And the solution we get is clearly revealed in the New Testament, in Jesus. It's the cadence to the tension that's, that's been building in the Old Testament. Finally, we get a resolution. We get an answer, a clear answer. Though he whispered it all throughout the Old Testament, we finally get the, 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 uh, uh, that tension broken in the, in the New Testament. But then the New Testament closes with another Old Testament of sorts, the book of Revelation. So again, it's, it's as if we're in this window now. We're in a window of grace and mercy. But that window of grace and mercy does not close for those who are in Christ. That's the beauty of it. All right, so so to summarize in a nutshell here, summarizing in a nutshell, then we can open up for a few questions. Uh, Yes, the Old Testament details for us the part of the story, the bad news, the consequences and dire nature of sin. And the New Testament reveals us to the answer, you know, that rescues us from that sin. But it's not that the wrath of God has disappeared. Or that God has changed or has mellowed out in the New Testament. There's still a very, very bleak outlook for those who don't have a covering for their sin. Very bleak. Uh, an outlook that looks far worse than it did for the 42 youths or Uzzah who, who tried to steady the ark. It looks much, much worse for them. And anytime you see something like that, you have to remember that whenever anyone dies in that way, they're still in God's hands. They're still in the hands. Of, it's still God's ultimate decision on what's the outcome or the, or the fate of that person. And God is infinitely just. He's infinitely merciful, okay? But again, for those who are in Christ, you are protected, saved, and spared from God's wrath thanks to the salvation of Christ, okay? I hope that provides a little bit of a window as to what is going on in those passages in the Old Testament. Again, he's painting a picture for us. He's painting a picture of the dire nature and, and, and consequences of sin, and we get this resolution in the new. Any other questions or comments or thoughts or anything at all? Yes, George. Okay, George has some insight for us on why they called Elisha a bald head. Mm-hmm. Yes. George is saying, is it wasn't it traditional in that culture back then for men to have a beard and even long hair? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he had long hair. You're kind of a fake because, could be, because again, if, if we want to compare what Elisha looked like, who was much younger than Elijah, you know, there could be an element of, uh, of phys- something about his physical appearance that didn't strike them as Elijah. Like Elijah may have played the part and looked the part of a prophet, where Elisha, a little bit younger, may not have looked the part. And so maybe that's why they were teasing him. And again, there's some commentators that firmly believe he was just a balding man. He was a young man who was balding. And so that was, they, they started to, to chide him for that because again, hair, yeah, back then was also a sign of maturity and a sign of, of, of growth and, and even the profit. So if he was lacking in that department at all, you know how teenagers are. No, it's not, it's not fair. But yeah, I think you're onto something. Yeah. Someone else comment, question? Jody. Mm-hmm. Era. Yeah, yeah. Jody's asking, "Why does it seem? Why does it seem like uh, the those instances where God's wrath it seems to be diminishing in the in the New Testament versus what we see in the Old? Is that the visible the, the visible?" Yeah. And, and I can think about that. If you're telling a story, and, I, and again, what, what I read from Romans earlier said, says that, uh, that God is still about the business of, of, uh, of justice. He's still about the business of, of uh, even wrath. Okay. It may not be plainly visible to us all the time, but he's still doing that. And the reason I think maybe we don't highlight it or, or it seem like it's highlighted as much in the New Testament is because, again, the, the lead, if you will, the lead in the, in the New Testament is Jesus, is respite from judgment and wrath. And that's, that's the headline, if you will. He's establishing in the Old Testament, here's, here's, what, sh- here's what you're naturally capable of doing on your own. Here's, here's the wrath that you will naturally incur on your own. In the New Testament, here's the, here's the relief from that. Here's the answer to that. And again, that's why it says in, in Romans 1, 18, that 18, still he's still... still about that business and that's why we also read in revelation that he'll still be about it just as plainly as as he was in the old testament but while we're in this window of grace and mercy and he's 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 bringing as many people as he as he can into the into the fold uh we're still in this window and uh and as long he's there that's that's the theme i guess that exists in in the new testament that salvation is here the kingdom of god is at hand and uh and and that's my my best shot and again, it's not that God has changed, it's that He's providing us grace, mercy, and and uh and respite for, for our sin right now. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? All right. If you have any other thoughts, comments, or questions that you'd like to just ask me about, I'm always happy to, to oh, hold on one second. One second here. Uh Rosemary. Okay. God has power uh to also put aside his wrath. That's right. This is what I, I was just Vaguely referring to this Romans nine twenty two and on when Jesus was mocked and did not give the disciples the freedom to, to call down curses, okay. Uh, when when on the cross Jesus was mocked. Oh, this is such a good point, Rosemary. He he prayed for them to be forgiven for they did not know what they what they did. Again, Jesus the embodiment of grace and mercy. So even when he was mocked, he was saying, "Forgive them for they know not what they do." Again, it's the nature of Jesus. Okay, uh, and this is what he's bringing to us in the in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, let me close us in prayer. And then, uh, again, if you have any other comments or questions that you want to talk through with me, by the way, this was Rosemary's question about the, the bears and the youth. So, so glad you could join us today, Rosemary. Uh, let's pray. Dear heavenly father, we thank you for the wonder of scripture. We thank you for the wonder of what it is. And, uh, and we thank you that you've not left us groping, uh, in darkness, uh, but you've given us something to, to look into and dig into and, and see a pattern Uh, Father, give us the determination, give us the desire and the longing to to not just want to uh, um, take the word of God in in small bits, but give us the desire to to digest it from beginning to end uh, so that we understand better your story, uh, which is a story of grace, mercy, and uh, and loving kindness. Though we deserve one thing, you've given us Jesus, uh, and help us to know that and understand it and believe it as we leave here. Once again, we thank you for your son and it's in his holy name that we pray, amen.